We're going to start off, first basic point we want to cover this morning is that God doesn't elect people because of something in them, but he chooses them because of his own purpose and love. Because of his own purpose, grace, and love. <clears throat> now, these, all these passages uh, you'll have before you here in a second. <clears throat> um, but the first one I'll just review because uh, Ryan talked about it last week. Let me pray before we start. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would uh, pour out your grace upon us as we consider uh, this amazing uh, teaching of your sovereign work to initiate into our lives your love, to uh, set your love upon us before the world began, and for that love to not have, uh, to not stop until we are with you forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we thank you for such a love without which uh, we all would be lost. And we pray that you would help us celebrate that love and, Lord, to live in keeping with that love. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, in Deuteronomy 7 is one of the... This is one that Brian, Brian talked about last week. But here he says, I loved and chose you because, right... I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. And he specifically says it was not because of anything in you. Particularly there, uh, not because you were the uh, greatest of people, uh, something to turn the eye, but you were the fierce of all people. Now, let's go here to uh, Romans 9. Uh, and this, here Paul is going back to really the root of election, the root of his God's own uh, choosing of his people, and even within the line of Abraham, choosing one and not another, okay? So, <clears throat> here in Romans 9, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done any. Uh, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. <clears throat> now, as you know, the word hate here is not literal, but it is a way, as uh, it says, of his... Uh, Love for Rachel, uh, when that's talking about Isaac's love of Rachel, it says that God saw that Leah was hated because she was not the preferred one. So um, it, when God sets his love to draw Esau, to draw Jacob to himself, uh, it's referred to in this way I loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Uh, I didn't choose Esau, is the way he's, he, what he means here. But I notice, notice here, they were not yet born, not born, done nothing. He says, good or bad, right? 
so that it would not be works. In other words, God specifically is not looking to see which of these boys is going to be the best boy, right? And then making his decision based upon which is the best boy, either which one is more likely to have faith, which one is more likely to obey me, which one is going to be more faithful after I draw him to myself, which one's going to be less prone to anger or whatever. See, none of that had any basis. And he even underscores it by saying uh, they hadn't even been born yet. Now, you could technically say, well, God could see, but that's not the point, is it? The point is they weren't born. They hadn't done anything. And without any regard to who's good or who's bad, he chooses. He sets his love on one of them. So you see, though, it's not works, but it's the purpose of election. And notice the association as up here with love and choosing is that Jacob I loved, okay, So he had a purpose in his election, and then it also uses the word calling. And we'll explore this uh, a a, a little bit. But it's not because of works, but because of him who calls. uh, And that call is according to the purpose of his election. And it's because he set his love on Jacob and not Esau. Now, this is a tough passage in the sense of you just... Just realize it literally has nothing to do with who they are, but the purpose is the same as this. I love Jacob because I loved him. I love him because that was my purpose. I called him not because of anything in him. Notice how 2 Timothy uh, 1 puts it. Very, very similar. He saved us called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So here's the word purpose, and then we can add the word grace here. So he has a purpose. It's a purpose of love. It's a purpose of grace. When it says purpose of grace, you could almost translate it his gracious purpose, purpose of his kindness and goodness. Uh, But again... He says it's not because of works. It had nothing to do with how good or bad, whatever. It was according to his purpose. It was according to his grace. When did he give it to us there in 2 Timothy? Right? Before the ages began. The point is it had nothing to do with how good or bad we were. So he elects his people not because of something in them, but because of his own purpose, grace, and love. You see this in Ephesians. And here's the association again with election and and love. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, again, before the foundation of the world, That's the same as 2 Timothy, before the ages began. So, common idea expressed a little bit differently. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice, in love he predestined us 
for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So there's purpose again. There's love again. He loved us and then he predestined according to his purpose. And you get the idea here that the purpose is I'm going to set my love upon them and I'm never going to take that love away from them. That's the purpose, right? It's a purpose that expresses itself in the way he loves them. So, and notice, it's to the praise of what? It's to the praise of grace. This is all recognized as grace again. You have these common words uh, there in Second Timothy, uh, according to the purpose of his grace. Here it says he predestined us in love uh, according to his purpose to the praise of his grace. So purpose and grace and love are all bound up uh, together here. Then in verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined again according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So <clears throat> there's this will, purpose that in these passages causes, uh, leads to predestined and choose. And all of this is marked by grace and love. Okay? He has a will and a purpose to do good to these people. He predestines, he plans it, he chooses them before the foundation of the world. And then as we will see, he calls them, that is, he brings them to himself. That'll be our, our next point. But here we're trying to stress it's purpose, grace, and love, not something in them. It's God's own purpose, grace, and love. Notice in John 15, it's very specific. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, as we'll see, that's it's pretty the opposite of what some people would say election is. God didn't choose. He just looked ahead to see who would choose him, right? <clears throat> and uh, here's Jesus apparently got that backwards, right? <laughs> He said, you did not choose me. Now, did they choose him? Of course they chose him. They came to a point where they chose to trust in Christ. They believed in him. But the point is that he's making this point. You didn't initiate this. It wasn't your choosing that directed all of this. It was my choosing of you. Um, And your choice was only the result of that. And notice these passages all pointing to God's love in election, right? Uh, The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose them. Deuteronomy 4, because he loved your fathers and chose them. Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You see in the same phrase, you're his chosen ones. You're the beloved of God. Or 1 Thessalonians, we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. So, it's grace, it's purpose, love. Now, I'm going to say something. This is, this is anticipating a little bit our second point, but I think I need to make it right now. I, when I first came to understand election, I and 
all the young Turks with me that were uh, a sad bunch. It, the, the, some people say, when you first become Reformed, you shouldn't open your mouth for five years. <laughs> <laughs> that's because you're going to be belligerent and prival and, you know, everything. You not, That's not really true necessarily, but uh, for our sake it was. And some of you know this anecdote. One of my friends, we were in a... We'd all recently come to Reformed Faith, and we were in the First PCA Church in Tuscaloosa, and uh, we were at a Bible study one night, and some little, nice little girl who came to Bible study uh, shared something that she thought the verse meant. My friend said, heresy from the pit. <laughs> That'll really get the relationship going right there on so, uh, so what we would say, though, and, and what a lot of people say, just emphatically, they'll say, God doesn't love everybody because they begin to understand this particular love that God has for his elect. And so they're really good about saying, no, no, <laughs> you say God loves it. He doesn't love everybody. He doesn't love everybody. Now, that's just as wrong as saying he doesn't have a particular love for some. So let's talk about that just a little bit. Uh, For instance, Jesus is the one that emphasizes in Matthew 5, and I wouldn't go against Jesus here, right, Uh, (laughs) that he causes uh, good, this is a paraphrase, but he causes good to come to the righteous and to the unrighteous. He, He gives them rain, he gives them food. Every single day, uh, those who hate God, despise Him, uh, don't even believe in Him, He gives them another meal and another meal and another meal. And He lets the sun shine on them and they get the rain and they have a picnic and He gets to kiss His wife and He hugs His grandchildren, all these things. And He just does it day after day after day after day the whole time they hate Him. He just keeps doing it. Jesus says that that is the model for how you and I should regard our enemies. And he calls it kindness. He calls it love. So there is a real, sincere love that God has for his creation and for the wicked. Now, it's complex because there's another passage that says he's angry with the wicked every day. So God is complex. He shows kindness. Well, As we talked about this uh, last week uh, or two weeks ago, here's the way we say election works. Nobody wants God. Everybody would refuse God. But God sends out the gospel. Free offer, okay? Free offer of the gospel. And... You want to know how real this is? Remember Jesus weeping over Jerusalem saying, I would have gathered you like a mother hen would her chicks, but you wouldn't do it. What do you do with that? That's the electing God who's saying, and he's the full real expression of God. Don't make it out to be, well, that wasn't really God. That was just the human being. No, this is Jesus. He says, I would have gathered you. Like, this is Yahweh speaking, right? Yahweh speaking over the centuries. I would have gathered you like a mother hen would her chicks, and you wouldn't do it. 
He meant it. See, this offer of the gospel is sincere and real. And that's why it says in Scripture, he does not rejoice or uh, he is is not glad in the loss of uh, the unbelieving. I'm sorry, I lost the phrase. Um, But he, he, he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Right, that's the phrase. So... And Jesus, he's not, he's not weeping over Jerusalem because he was, didn't sincerely love them. Okay? And God sincerely offers. He sincerely offers to every person, I will have you if you'll trust me. He really means it. But you know what he does with a lot of people? When they say no, that's where it sits. Okay? <laughs> that's where he leaves it. They say no, and they're no is the last word on it. Now, for his own people that he set his love upon, that we'll explore that a little further, but he says, no, no. Uh, and he shines the glory of Jesus into their hearts. And this is where the biblical word, he calls them to himself. Now, there's this general love on all of mankind and, and creation. He calls the rains to fall, etc. Paul rehearses this in Acts 14 and Acts 17 <clears throat> to uh, pagans. And then there's this call, this love that's offered in the gospel. But there is a particular love that won't take no for an answer. Okay, That's the love we're talking about. A love that chooses and that draws us to himself. And uh, it's a sovereign love that uh, makes sure that we end up in heaven, okay, as we're going to see. So you see it here in Romans 8, page 2. You'll see uh, these words that we've been uh, talking about. It's important... Always remember, we did this two weeks ago, it's important how you draw those arrows, whether they go in this way or this way. Because the common idea is everybody wants to get to God, but God said, no, sorry, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. But really, we're all trying to get to hell, and God's saying, you can't, you can't, you can't. Election populates heaven. It doesn't populate hell in that sense. Um, so we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And notice here it is, for those who are called according to his purpose. So here's again the word purpose. And the call is in accordance with that purpose, right? You're called according to the purpose. He has a plan, a purpose, a will, and then he fulfills that purpose in the call. And then he uh, lines it out. He expands what he's talking about. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then, so here I would put with this, he foreknew and predestined. Okay? Because, what does it then say? Those he predestined, he called. So, he called according to his purpose, according to those he had loved and predestined. Then it said those he called, he justified. And those he justified, 
be glorified. And this is speaking of the resurrection. The final resurrection. Which also is the same as what he says earlier, conform to the image of his son. So, he has a purpose um, that uh, we, we would be prede- the purpose is that we'd finally be conformed to the image of his son, that we finally would attain the resurrection, that we finally be, would be glorified. That was the purpose. So, he called us to himself, he justified us, and he will finally glorify us. So, the end was from the beginning. Because it says, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. See that? All the way. Now, that may include our progressively becoming like Christ. But in this passage, it's specifically talking about this final bearing of the image of Jesus in the resurrection. And here he calls it being glorified. Now, this passage is the favorite passage for trying to find another meaning for election. We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. So, when you come up against the word election uh, over and over in Scripture, you're the chosen, you're the elect, he predestines, he, then you have to, you can't get rid of the word, so let's change the meaning of the word. And this is the passage that people like to use to try to change the meaning of uh, election. And it goes like this. It's, uh, they take the word foreknow, okay? What do they take it to mean, anybody? Yes, okay. He looks ahead in time and to see uh, who will believe, right? Basically. So, you're going to look ahead to see who will believe. And then, when he sees who will believe, then he chooses. Now, how does that... What's the the motivation? Why would you want election to be that way? Yeah, (laughs) one of them is it gives you control, that's for sure. God off the hook. Yeah. Will you say God chooses some and not other? No, 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 no. No, he just looks ahead to see who will choose, and he picks them. I mean, you can't fault him for that. He just looks ahead to see who will believe, and then he picks them. So he gets off the hook, you know. He's, he's free. He's, he's, he doesn't show favoritism, right? There's kind of that idea of God showing favoritism. Well, we're going to show that. He actually, in this system, shows more favoritism. All right, the first problem is the grammar. It says, he foreknew, whom he foreknew, okay? It's not that he knew something about them. It doesn't say God looked ahead to see who would believe. He did something to them. He foreknew them and predestined. See? So the grammar itself doesn't support that. This is very interesting. I've read parts of the Book of Mormon. <clears throat> Joseph Smith rewrote 
parts of John, and it says specifically he looked ahead to see who would believe and chose them. It really says it in the Book of Mormon. You know, I thought, God, when I saw that the first time, uh, amazing, you know. But he obviously had a problem with it, and so you just, since you're Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know, <laughs> just <clears throat> that's what it says. I, I read them in the stones, you know. But All right, here's the other problem is, with this, is the meaning of no. Uh, in, here's some, like Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you when you were in your mother's womb. Now, it doesn't say, I knew about you, because he could say that about every human being on earth, right? I know everything about every human being in every womb. I know all about them. But I knew you in your mother's womb. Or uh, Adam and Eve, right? He knew Eve. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of relationship. Uh, Psalm 1-6, God knows the way of the righteous, well, he knows the way of the unrighteous, but not in that way. See, it speaks of intimacy. It speaks of relationship, his love for them. <clears throat> not just, I know, hey, I know all about the righteous. That's not what he's saying. I know the righteous. I'm intimate with the righteous. Or uh, Psalm uh, uh, 37, 37, 18 uh, speaks the same thing. I know the way of the blameless. <clears throat> so... Here, here's a real problem I have with this issue. So instead of my knowing that before time, God set his love upon me, even though he knew how terribly sinful I would be, instead of that, God just knew about me, knew that I would believe. And it just... It just bleeds the beauty and glory out of... This means, wait a minute, you mean God's always loved me? Always? So much that he gave his son, so much that he made sure I would believe in his son, so much that I would inherit the kingdom with his son? Like, he foreloved me so that I would finally be conformed to the image of his son? He loved me that much? That's just gone if this suddenly is... He looked ahead. He looked ahead. So that's a problem, right? Uh, a third problem is finding a believer when you look ahead. <laughs> that is, without God's uh, drawing. For instance, uh, the, as the passages go here, John 6, 4, No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. So what does God look ahead to see? <laughs> it's not as though, you see... The other, this is a philosophical problem. We won't talk about this as much, but it's not as though God can run beside history, you know, like, golly, look, ooh, look at that. Oh, wow, I didn't know that was going to, you know, it's just like to, he had to decide for me, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, you go up this far and 64 people have to have babies exactly as God wanted them to have babies. And then 32 had to, and then 16. I mean, he's been planning your existence for a long time, and he had to be totally involved in every single uh, bearing of a child, okay? God can't, he can't extract himself from history to see what's going to happen in history. 
you know, as though he's not a player, the player in history. The whole idea is fantasy. But here's the problem is looking to find, just to observe who's going to believe and who's not. Because it says in John 6.65, no man can come to the Son unless it's been granted him by the Father. So it's granted and they're drawn. And they were described as blind and dead and slaves that we don't understand. We do not submit. Romans 3 says, there's none who seek for God. So what would God look ahead and find? None will seek for me. None. Nobody will seek for me. He'll look ahead and say, there's none that understand. There's none that would choose me. <clears throat> so, uh, that's the problem, is that there are no believers to find uh, because God must create that belief. He must grant that we believe. <clears throat> this would fly in the face of other passages. Like if Paul wanted the opportunity, if he was looking for the opportunity to show that uh, with Jacob and Esau, now, look, there was Jacob and there's Esau, but he saw how Esau was going to sell his birthright. He saw that, and that just made him sick. And while Jacob had some problems, he saw that Jacob ultimately was going to serve him. So he chose Jacob and not Esau. He could have said that if that was true, right? But he said the opposite. Right when you have the opportunity to point to the specific actions or belief or unbelief of the other uh, person, he he didn't do that. And we need to remind ourselves. Well, I'll say that in a minute here. All right, this is an attempt to remove the quandary Paul puts us in in Romans 9, which we don't have time to get to. But when you read Romans 9, 14 through 24, you'll see Paul pressing the point and he creates these questions that we come up with. He'll say, after the Jacob and Esau... He says, so is there injustice on God's part? Have you ever asked that question when you think about God electing some and not others? In the first thing that comes to mind is, gosh, is that right? Is that just? Paul says, this question will be raised. If it was a look ahead thing, the question wouldn't be raised, but it is raised. And then he just underscores it and says, all right, this is what God says to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Like, if you think God's going to back away from it, you know, and say, oh, whoa, 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 what? No, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about choosing some and not others. But he just pushes further into it. God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. Then Paul says, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, that's not looking ahead, depending. It's God who has mercy. He chooses who he's going to have mercy upon. Then he even brings in Pharaoh of, of uh, having mercy, showing uh, the hard, hardening Pharaoh's heart. And he says, he, merc- he has mercy on whom he wills, he hardens whom he wills. Then you will say, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you to answer back to God? And then he uses the uh, clay illustration. What does the clay say to the one who mows the clay? Does the clay sit there and say, I don't want to be made into a pot? I'm telling you, (laughs) Paul just presses in and presses in and presses in to the sheer sovereignty of God. You know where that leaves us? It leaves us crying out, oh, Lord, save me. 
save me, oh Lord, save me. I cannot save myself. I can do nothing. Oh Lord, it is you that saves. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so... This, well, there's a, one of the basic things is, for instance, if, if you heard of a guy, say there are 20 guys absolutely proven murderers on death row, and the governor grants a pardon to one, you're not going to think, that's so unfair to the 19. Why would he treat them that way and not let them go? You know what you'll be saying? He let that guy go. That's your sense of, you know, justice. But we don't see ourselves as the criminals, you know, and that we all deserve eternal punishment and God has mercy on us. Um, This makes God uh, play favorites, right, to look ahead. Because what does Hebrews 3.12 say? Uh, Beware lest in any one of you there is a what believing, unbelieving heart. Remember that phrase? Evil, unbelieving heart. So, to look ahead to see who will believe is the difference in seeing who is evil and who is good. Who is so good that they believe or so evil they're going to stay in unbelief. I have a problem with that. (laughs) Um, God does not look ahead. And it's interesting that Paul, he doesn't really talk about forcing faith, but he talks about forcing works because for Paul, faith and works are all bound up. You have works because of belief. So the Bible says without faith, you cannot please God. So these are the ones that please God and he picks them. So any thought of, God initiating his love into your life in spite of who you are. Um, if that were the, if, uh, if what they say is true, then we all should be singing the song, Julie Andrews. I must have done something good, right? <laughs> must have. All these good things are happening somewhere in my childhood. I must have done something good. And in this view, if you're chosen, you think, you know, he must have seen something good in me. He must have seen that I would believe. And that's why he picked me. Um, I, and it's interesting that this is what show is, is, is favoritism. We, uh, Paul warns the uh, people he writes to in James chapter 2, don't favor the rich, you know, let them sit down front and the poor people sit in the back. Uh, don't show that kind of favoritism. And it's interesting in trying to uh, absolve God of playing favorites in election, you really make him to be a God who plays favorites. Because no longer does it depend just on his love and his purpose, but now it depends on who's good and who's not. That's a terrible... It it scares me to death to think of a God who would do that to this. Because I I wouldn't be a Christian... I might be dead, and I'm not kidding. 
okay, my immoral life. God couldn't have looked ahead to say, oh, darn, boy, he's a prize, you know. I just would be lost. Um, So it makes God play favorites. And it's interesting how we want to pick, want to improve God. You've seen the movie Miss Congeniality and Sandra Bullock shows up and she's this gum-chewing, you know, FBI agent and uh, all masculine and everything. And and they, she's presented to Candice Bergen as we need to put her in the uh, Miss America contest. And she's like, couldn't I know? <laughs> you know, there's no way. And so uh, introduce him to Michael Caine and he's just thinking there's no way to get her from here to here. And I think of this as we we take God and we think he's this, you know, terrible FBI agent and we want him to become a beauty queen, our beauty queen, right? The beauty queen I want. And so this makes me think, suppose a guy pulls up to the Kimball. This will really make Sue queasy, but he pulls up to the Kimball and he's in a van and it has on the side T-shirts. He gets out, and he's got kind of covered with some paints, and he pulls out his sprayer, and he tests a few colors, bright pink, bright orange, bright green, bright blue. And uh, he's taking his sprayer, whole apparatus, to walk. Now, before he even does this, when he pulls up, we need backup, you know. So the guys are just standing there at the door, and he gets up there and says, what do you think you're going to do? I'm going to go in there and... uh, just make some adjustments to some of the paintings. No, no, you don't have to worry about it. Look, I've done thousands of T-shirts. I know what I'm doing. This T-shirt right here, look, you know. But that's us. I'm going to fix God. I'm going to repaint God. I'm going to put luminescent colors on the Mona Lisa. And she's going to look so much better after I get through with her, you know. And brothers and sisters, I... I don't know of anybody who struggled more with God's sovereignty and the choices he made to allow sin and to allow suffering in this world. And I've told many of you this. I sometimes have felt like I was on this uh, conveyor belt and there was a saw at the end and I was headed for that saw. And the saw is God, but I don't have anywhere else to go. I just don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> He's a God that 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 is so far beyond and his sheer sovereignty is is frightening and numbing sometimes and I don't understand him and yet uh, and yet I adore him and I I would never by his grace leave him and it's his sovereignty that gives me security it's his sovereignty that gives me hope it's his sovereignty that assures me that no matter how wicked and evil I am He's initiated love into my life from eternity. Um, So you can look in these uh, passages. It it should make you wonder, because I asked a man one time, oh, we got to go. I asked a guy who held the other view one time, all right, let's say Mike and uh, Bill are both, uh, both hear the gospel. Mike believes, Bill doesn't. Who made the difference, God or man? And he's a really good friend of mine. He said, I can't answer that question. He said, because if I say God, that would give away my whole position. But I'm not comfortable to say man made the difference, you see. 
It's God that makes the difference. And that's why we end up saying, why me? Why did you do this for me? I'm just as evil more so than this or this or this person. Why did you love me? So these pat, these uh, hymns hopefully will be uh, helpful in that regard. Well, next week we'll get to the rest of this, and we'll have an extensive time of Q&A with Ryan and Darwin. <laughs> okay. That's going to be good. No, <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your sovereign work in our lives, your love that has been set on us from all eternity and will never, ever give up until we are yours forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.